Welcome to the Parent Guide to GCSE podcast episode number 10. Today I'm joined by Dick Moore and as a word of warning this podcast does contain discussions about suicide and self-harm. Welcome to the Parent Guide to GCSE podcast. Today I'm joined by Dick Moore who is a former teacher and by his own admission an occasionally, very occasionally, grumpy head teacher and he now describes himself as a mental health first aid instructor. Welcome. Thank you very much indeed. Right, now there's a lot to sort of unpack there, to go from teacher all the way up to being a head teacher to deciding actually uh, you wanted to do something entirely differently. I know you've got a very powerful story to tell, could you just um, yeah, start yeah. to uh, unpack that please? Certainly, so um, I am uh, about as privileged as, uh, as uh, I think you can be, uh, and likewise my family. Uh, four boys, uh, challenging, uh, uh, lovely, but challenging, and really very, very normal, ordinary guys, not sensational or anything, and uh, no major issues. Um, I started off life as an English teacher and a rugby coach, um, and became a, a, a housemaster. And then, uh, ooh, 32 years ago, uh, I became a head uh, of a co-ed day in boarding school. Uh, and I did that for nearly 23 years and took early retirement, gosh, 10 years ago this summer, which makes me feel incredibly old, much older than I look, I, I imagine. I'm not even going to ask. No. Um, <laughs> You're a head teacher. That's impressive. Yeah. So, um, so I was ahead and, uh, and it, was, it was terrific. And I always feel sometimes that, that teachers are in many ways spoiled because actually working with, with young people is, is a privilege. But it got to the stage um, um, towards the end of my time as a head when I, I realized I was running out of energy, um, both physical and emotional, uh, and that I wanted to decide that I needed to get out before people realized that I was running out of energy. Uh, so I took early retirement. Um, and that obviously came as bad news for my wife because she then had to get a, a part. I mean, she had a job with me running my school. In fact, she did most of the running of it. But when I retired, she had to get a job. So she got a job as a, a maths and physics teacher and a housemistress in a posh girls boarding school uh, in Berkshire. And, uh, and I became a house husband. Cracking, pretty absolutely marvellous. Um, uh, especially as I was living in a boarding house surrounded by 65 teenage girls for whom I had no responsibility. So I could have all the fun of being around kids. And I could razz them up and get them all overexcited and then actually say, well, actually, I'm, I'm off to watch the football now um, and leave other people to sweep it all up. Um, but then a year and a bit into uh, that role, my number three son, Barney, um, took his own life. Um, and that, is, uh, that was uh, obviously time to completely reassess um, what life's about, really. Um, and because if one of my kids who has been, as I said, about as privileged and lucky and balanced as it can, can suffer to that extent, then other people can. So, so I joined up with a little charity, the Charlie Waller Memorial Trust, cracking charity, give it a quick name drop. Um, and gradually they asked me to do a talk at a school. And that was now seven years ago, eight years ago. Uh, and it's steamrolled since then. Um, so I now do um, 
talks and workshops and mental health first aid courses, not just in schools, uh, but when I do do it in schools, anybody from year five upwards, universities, colleges, businesses, increasingly, um, and uh, around the UK and uh, in the Middle East, the Far East, anywhere that wants me, I, uh, I set off and, and uh, yeah, do my bit, really. And my wife is, um, is now doing a, um, a master's in child and adolescent psychotherapy, works with Childline. Um, so life has changed a fair bit, but, but I'm not actually obsessed with the suicide angle. Obviously, that has resonated powerfully. And in these odd times, um, I'm not sure whether the government has paid enough credence to the impact that um, this lockdown is going to have on people's mental health and the suicide rate will go up. But, but more than that, I'm passionate about those tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands possibly, of young people who aren't going to take their own lives, uh, but whose emotional and mental health is such that they will not be able, A, to be content, B, to function, and C, to, to meet their potential. And, and, I, and I'm quite sure that we could do something about it. And are that's what about, I want. So those figures before coronavirus, are you talking about as a result of the, the current situation? No, no, before coronavirus. Um, I mean, that's, I haven't, I haven't done, a, done a talk in a school since uh, and very early March. Um, and, you know, I've seen, even in the years I've been doing it, so I did my first talk in 2012. And even since then, the, the number of, of self, self-harm, um, all, all those areas have increased dramatically. Obviously, we are now aware of it, therefore we're looking for it. But, uh, and therefore the numbers are going to appear higher. You look hard at something, you'll see more. Yeah. But there is no doubt that, that the world today is uh, less kind to uh, young people particularly than it was when I was that age. Well, that's something I would, I would entirely agree with because I went to a, a relatively fancy boarding school. Uh, I was packed off at the age of 10 years old and yeah, my daughter's 11 now. The idea of having already sent her away for the last year or so somewhere else, you know, never to see her every, I don't know, eight to 10 weeks or so just seems really strange. So I was, I was packed off and, um, but I don't, you know, I, I remember having a great sort of school, schooling, childhood. Uh, I don't remember ever suffering any kind of anguish as such, um, but I didn't see any sort of people suffering around me either. It, it seems to, you know, but now as a teacher these days, or I've stopped teaching um, recently, I was dealing with it on a, certainly on a weekly basis, if not a daily basis, where people mm. really were not coping. Mm. Can you explain or account or suggest reasons why, is it just we are looking harder or are there other reasons in play here? I think, um, I mean, it, it is very much the case that when we were young and at school that um, there were pressures that aren't there now. Uh, the level of, of bullying, to coin a very evocative phrase, was, was much bigger. Um, um, but I think the key thing is that this self-harm, for example, has been going on back into the millennia. Um, soldiers shooting themselves in the foot in the trenches. Um, I can remember, and I don't often 
talk about this, but when I was 10, I self-harmed. And I'd, I hadn't thought about it in the last 50 years until Barney died. And then I asked my dad, do you remember that little boy at school? And he said, yeah, we never knew what was wrong with you. Me, Johnny Dittmore, age 10. And that would have been in 1967. So, so it has been there. But I think, I think what has happened now is that the expectation, the immediacy of the world, the fact that you cannot escape um, the focus, the spotlights, um, and it's not just down to technology and phones and social media. It's down, I think, to everything. And the grades, we were talking before we started about our O-level grades. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and you look back and you think, actually, how much pressure was I put under at my quite demanding school? And the answer is not really very much. Um, I don't remember being in, you know, desperately anxious about my exams. I wish I had been in a way. Um, I have exactly the same same thing. I, you know, I don't remember any pressure whatsoever. I mean, these days it's all about uh, your predicted grades, which are based on your year um, year six SAT scores. So they they then do some maths, and five years later, this is the grade you're going to get, and everything you do. Every parent evening from year seven through to 11 is based on you should be getting this, but actually at the moment you're only getting that. Yeah, measurement, yeah. measurement, standards. Yeah. And, and that, I think, you know, that catches us as parents out because what do we do? How do we, we go to a school and we say, actually, we were expected to get there, but we're only there. Um, what do we do about it? Do we just sit back and say, well, I'm not putting pressure on? And if you do that and your child then, fails then who's to blame um and therefore i think it's very difficult for parents to jump off that bandwagon um and you know i talk when i talk to parents i talk about uh, toxic tutoring um and the fact that if we if we tutor our children my wife um was asked this last christmas to tutor a little boy uh, locally um on between Boxing Day and New Year's Day. Uh, so whatever that is, five, six days. Um, uh, uh, for an hour and a half each morning and, uh, in maths. And she asked how old the little boy was. Six. <laughs> wow. Entry into the junior school of the local highly academic senior school. And you think, that's criminal. And what it comes down to, uh, I, I believe, is schools are putting their business needs before the welfare of children. And I feel really, they'll never agree with that, they'll deny it till the cows come home, but actually they are creating this furnace of anxiety that is catching both parents and children in a, in a sort of horrible maelstrom of, of, of perpetuating pressure. And, uh, and, the, and that's okay. They have to find a way of choose, you know, finding the children they, they need or want, but they are not preparing children to cope with that pressure. Life is pressure, isn't it? For well, absolutely. I mean, I, I agree with you about schools, but I, you know, why do you think schools do that? Because I mean, my opinion on that is it's entirely government driven. Schools are only doing what they are told to do. The whole Progress 8 measures, it's about getting those eight subjects and getting those fantastic grades. They don't care about the other side of, uh, of school life. That well, does that's, figure on the, on the grades column. Well, I think Progress 8 is one of the most dire um, 
processes that uh, that I've come across. Um, and I, you know, you look back to um, to Tony Blair, and it's going way way back. But actually, and I I was uh, I, I thought Tony Blair was great. But what he the worst thing he did was bring in this this measurement culture. Hmm. That if you can't measure it, it's not really very valuable. And we all know, and parents know, and schools probably know that actually, love, you can't measure. How valuable is love? I mean, I know it's a bit of an extreme, soppy example, but as, as you suggest, there are an awful lot of things in school, schools do and could do more of to value things that you can't necessarily measure. The school play, uh, the concert, the, the sport, the this, the that, the other. But at this obsession, I went to a school the other day, not far from, not far from here, and you walk into the reception and there are three big notice boards, very glitzy notice boards, with the last three years of uh, league table. So in 2017 or 16, they were sort of 10th. And in 2017, they were 7th. In 2018, they were third. I want to know what's going to happen if they go down to eighth next year. Are they going to have that board up there? Is there going to be an empty board next to it? Do you think? It's going to be an empty board. Exactly. So, so you know, I, 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 uh, I do think that, but it's not just in what schools offer because decent schools now will offer those things that we're we both are aware of the the things that you can't measure. But the, the culture of those places is still based on grades, league tables, and measurements. And the culture has to change so that it's not just your head of PSHE and your deputy head pastoral, but it's everybody. It's that crusty old physics teacher. It's the head. It's, it's everybody understands that to be a good teacher, you have to address the mental and emotional health of the student in your class. And that's not just down to the head of PSHE or, or the doctor or the psychologist. It's down to you and me. Hmm. It's down to every teacher. Because if you get the children in your class, if you A, get them inspired, and B, feeling good about themselves, they'll perform. Um, and as you say, government needs to drive that. And government and then universities and then senior schools. Because I don't know what you feel, but when I, I now talk increasingly in primary schools, and what I see down there is really good stuff. They're doing some really good stuff in terms of a mental illness. But then come SATs. Yeah. I yeah, well, find that. My daughter's doing uh, SATs, well, she'll be doing SATs at the moment, but obviously, uh, given uh, the, the coronavirus situation, those yeah. have been cancelled. But yeah, I mean, she, she loved primary school. Uh, fabulous school that she's at. Um, yeah. And the, the first six years have been superb. She's just loved every second of it. And as we get, so as she got deeper into year six, it's just a really uninspired and just, you know, dreading the mock sats. And I think the school's actually just finished uh, pretty much the week when mock sats should have been happening. But- um, That's yeah. one good thing about the coronavirus then, isn't it? It's well, yeah. Well, I mean, we actually pulled her out of school a week before because I I'm, need to isolate and be, I'm slightly vulnerable due to a dodgy immune system. So we withdrew her a week early when she should have been doing these mock sats. And because, um, I mean, as parents, we just don't see any value in them whatsoever. I know that, you know, they will help to set her for, um, for secondary school. And, you know, she's very bright, so she needs to be in the top sets to 
you know, push her along. But just I place no value on them whatsoever. What you don't have to do, though, I, I believe, is you don't have to base the education of a child for a year to be able to make that assessment. No. In other words, SATs are driving teaching and learning. That's what's wrong, in, in my view. Um, you know, I'm all for driving up standards. And I think, if I'm honest, what's happened is that the, 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 the baseline has probably risen in the last 20 years. But it shouldn't be driving how we educate, how we teach, how we how children learn. Because we know so much more about that than we did 20 years ago. And yet our teaching, our curricula doesn't seem to have changed in line with that growing understanding. Mm. I mean, I, I remember 2007, I was at a school uh, and we had an Ofsted inspection and uh, it didn't go particularly well. And I remember the head teacher, I think we, we were put into a three, so it was requiring improvement, whatever it's called this, this week. And the head teacher at the time, he was really, really, really angry about it. I think it was appealed, and but it was upheld as a, as a, a requiring improvement. But he, um, he basically said that he doesn't need somebody like Ofsted to come into his school to say that things need to improve, because he knew where our weaknesses were. He knew what needed to be done better. And it's just that um, being judged against a set of criteria, he just didn't like it. He, he, he knew what he wanted to do, and he wanted to have the freedom to get on with that rather than having to work within this ridiculous framework and do what he was told to do rather than what he knew needed to be done. Yeah. And I think that's still the same today. It's, it's all well, about... Well, I do quite a lot of work with a, um, a school. I'm what's called a, a member of a, of a school up in uh, South Shields. So sort of a trust, a multi-academy trust, although there aren't much multi about it. But uh, it's the most astonishing school. It is in the most deprived area imaginable and it is absolutely superb it, yeah you know a really great school working with highly deprived kids and getting amazing results but when you put it on look at it progress eight wise they are average you know they're, they're, they're not doing too badly but and that must be so discouraging mm. to teachers um, that actually you're based on this tick box exercise with people coming in looking at criteria which they're trying to say well whether you are at Eton or at Harton, Harton Academy in South Shields the measurement criteria are the same yeah. well, that's crazy um, so you know I think as a parent I want I want my child to get the best possible education I want them to be inspired by by learning um, but I want their teachers to be fully aware of their emotional and mental well-being. That for me is, is number one priority. Um, because if you're aware of that, you can, you can, you can, you can balance everything else, your whole approach to teaching, and it, it, it will stem from that understanding. Well, can I just uh, use some stats that I've, I've, I've found out recently? Uh, 10 to 20% of students have inflicted self-harm. Uh, and that's an increase of 300% in the last 10 years. Yeah. Assuming those stats are correct, I mean, what's the impact on not only obviously the mental health of those students, that's the most important aspect, but the impact on their results must be enormous. Well, I, 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 I'm, I'm fascinated by self-harm and the statistics you gave. I mean, the ones I use is by the time they sit their GCSEs, 13% will have self-harmed. 
by mid twenties, um, it's it's one in five. So you know it's a big big deal. And so I asked why 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 would somebody choose to cut themselves or burn themselves or pull their hair out? And um, to me, the answer is they need to find a way of letting emotion out, emotional pain. So self-harm derives from emotional pain. So what are we doing to help our children find strategies to cope with emotional pain? What are we teaching them? Um, the child that can sit and play the piano for fun or appreciates the value of exercise or can paint or write or, or make things, those are far, far better outlets for emotional pain than simultaneous equations and rhyming couplets, arguably. <laughs> arguably. Um, um, so, you know, I, I, think, I think that, that those are the things we need, we need to be teaching, both as parents and as teachers. Yeah. Actually, how do you deal with emotion? We're all going to feel emotional pain. My sister's beloved dog is being put down today. And she's been on the phone in, in floods of tears. And my first thought was, what can, one, what can, what can I suggest to her? Um, rather than, you know, what can I suggest to relieve some of that emotional pain? Because it's inevitable, because we all experience emotional pain. How, how, do we, how can we deal with it? And that's why a lot of my talks about, uh, are about um, learning to dance in the rain. In other words, it's going to rain. It's going to they're going to there'll be storms all over them. You know what? They will all go past. And we have to get through those storms because the sun will come out again. Indeed, and that for me is crucial. A lot of what you talk about is about uh, developing resilience as well. Can you uh, yeah. explain a bit more? And, and you know, what can, obviously schools have got a role to play. Can parents you know, help with building resilience in their, in their children? hundred uh, um, percent. I would say to any parent watching this, or do you, you know, are, are you as an individual resilient? Now, if you'd asked me that eight years ago, I would have said, no, actually I'm not. I might appear to be resilient. I'm, you know, Johnny Dick Moore and confident and ahead and, you know, sense of humor and beer drinker and blah, blah, all those things. Uh, but I, I wasn't. I'm much more resilient now uh, since my son died because I now know that I can somehow get through something pretty terrible. But with little things, I'm still not resilient. Something goes wrong around the house and I will get, I'll get all flappy. Um, so I think the first thing we need to do as adults, as parents, is to say, well, actually, am I resilient? Why am I resilient? What of my experience can I give to my children to help them be resilient? I, I, when I'm talking to parents, I tell, <laughs> uh, I tell the story of a boy who came up after one of my talks. I think he was year nine. And he said, so he said, what should you have done? What more should you have done to stop Barney killing himself? And you think, bloody hell. <laughs> and you think, no adult would ever ask that question. But what a terrific question. Because, of course, it's something that we've been thinking every day for the last God knows how long. And there was an answer. And the answer is, we did not equip, we still do not equip, our children to deal with those big negative hits that they will encounter. So right the way through their childhood and into their adolescence and adulthood, if we've seen a problem coming up, we wanted to sort it out as parents. We wanted to protect and shield them from pain and difficulty. 
And at some stage, we should have been able to back off and say, you know what? You're in trouble at school. You think it's unfair. You go and sort it out. Don't ask me to phone up straight away. Mm. But I still find that incredibly difficult. Um, I, will, I will still try and sort my children's problems out. And that's natural. But actually, we do have to try and equip them with the knowledge that when life gets tough, they, can have, they will get through it, provided they ask for help, they've got people to lean on, they've got people to talk to, they've got people whose shoulder they will lean on, they've got people that they will listen to, who they're prepared to talk to. And of course, it might not be us as parents. For all the best reasons, the girl said to me last, uh, last summer, um, she said, uh, I know, I know mummy and daddy love me very much, but I also know they're going to define me by my, my GCSE results. Wow. And I said, okay. So he said, oh, so I'm feeling really low. And, and, and I said, well, have you talked to your mum and dad about how you're feeling? And she said, no, no, no. I know mum would be really upset. And, and dad would, all dad would want to do is try and solve the problem, which he wouldn't be able to do. Um, so no, I don't really want to talk to them. And I thought that for me was a real education. I mm-hmm. thought, yeah, but you know, have you got an uncle Bob? Have you got a big brother? Have you got, you know, a tutor who you can develop that sort of relationship with that you can go to when life is tough and say, what do you think I should do? I'm not looking for you to solve my problem because frankly, we can't do that. As teachers, we can't put a child's parents' marriage back together again. But what we can do is help them get through that. Yeah. Um, so I, I'm, I'm, I'm really passionate about that. Yes, we really can. But as a parent, you know, I talk a good game on this. <laughs> um, but as a parent, I'm, I'm no better than anybody else. I find it very difficult. It's, there's no, uh, there's no uh, manual, is there, to the job of parenting? It's learning as you go along. And even if there was a manual, I would read it. I'd say, well, it's okay for you. Yeah. You're writing this book telling me how to do it. But I bet you can't do it. Well, and, and it would need to get redrafted every uh, six months. Ago, <laughs> yeah. Frankly, the rules change quite quickly. So. Well, exactly. I'm just really chuffed that my children and all and I have grown up and I don't have the whole social media, for example, issues to deal with. Well, um, yeah. I mean, I mean, one of my boys is, is heavily into social media. The other one just doesn't get involved in it at all, um, which is kind of slightly odd. Um, I wonder why. I wonder why that is. Why is one, I mean, it's a perennial question for all parents. Why is that child like that and that one like that? It fascinates me. Well, I think, I, I think well, the answer for me is that one desperately, he thinks it's the way to make friends. And the other one sees it as just being slightly divisive and unnecessary and a bit of a time waste. Yeah. Um, and of course, they're both right, probably. Yeah. Um, I, I, I went to a talk by a fascinating guy called Dr. John Coleman. Uh, who was speaking about the impact of social media on, on teenagers. And I thought it was going to be, oh, you know, screen time for more than this hours a day damages this part of your brain. But it wasn't. It was about the dangers of people of our generation demonizing social media rather than wanting to learn about it and engage with it. So we can understand that actually this stuff is probably the greatest invention of our lifetime. And in terms of contributions to education, communication, inspiration, uh, all that stuff, so fantastic. But there is a downside. Yeah. And, and we have to be balanced. 
and I don't, I don't do social media, I have to say. Um, and if I, but I was still a parent, I hope I'd want to know what TikTok is and what the difference between Instagram and Snapchat. And I'm sure you do with kids. Yeah. Well, I, I, TikTok is something that's only been mentioned to me in the last couple of weeks. So uh, ah, well, there you go. my wife and daughter now have a joint TikTok account and keep doing silly dances. And uh, well, <laughs> <laughs> the last, the last school I went into, I referred to as as, as TikTok. And they, they all collapsed and laughed, you know. So uncool. So uncool. Very uncool. But then, hey, that's okay. I'm um, quite cool in my uncoolness. Well, well, exactly. When you get to a certain age, we've just got to just take it on the chin, haven't we? Yeah, exactly. Um, just another question about resilience. Uh, but do you think resilience and independence are basically one and the same thing? No. Now, having said no straight off the top of my head, thinking about it, um, no, I don't think so. In fact, I think independence taken too far can be a real problem. I think being growing into being into independent, i.e. able to stand on one's own two feet, is important. But I don't think I don't think any of us can be entirely independent through our lives. Um, you know, I'm I'm 63, just 63, and uh, for most of my life, I've been jolly dick more. I've been pretty tough, pretty strong, pretty resilient, pretty pretty much of a bloke. You know, pretty pretty this really good at rugby, and yeah, I've been I've been pretty good most of the time. But that's the key. Most of the time, I could not have got to where I am, and not just because of Barney. I could not, I don't believe anybody can get through life without having a cry, without, without needing to lean on somebody. And if that means being dependent for short spells, fine. The trick is, I guess, to get our children to learn to be dependent and to be, but to be able to, sorry, to be independent, but learn to identify when they can still be dependent. We're all dependent on love. Yeah. Why do we, we don't want to be independent of other people's love? Um, it is. So, it's a really good question. It's the first time I've ever been asked that question. It, it is about identifying when they need help and making sure they know where they can get it, whether it's parents or friends or family, teachers, tutors. And that's the agonizing thing that I'm finding is that I spend a lot of my time convincing young people that, you know, that there is nothing weak. The only thing that's weak about being vulnerable is being unable or unwilling to ask for help. And that all of us, all of us are vulnerable. Um, the, 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 the problem is that if I convince 25 young people to ask for help from their teacher or their tutor or their parent, and the assessment is made that actually we, we need more than this, we need a professional input, then what? That, that's, that's, that's the big difficulty, that unless you've got money, or even if you do have money and you can buy into a counsellor or something, you, you know, the CAMS thresholds are so, so huge mm. that these problems will grow and grow and grow. And by the time they get uh, reached the CAMS threshold, they've done untold damage. And that's what I find frustrating. You know, asking for help from those around you and I believe that 75% of the issues, the self-harming issues, could be cut off at the pass by having somebody earlier on 
to talk to, to listen. Um, but for those, that proportion, I mean, I, I came across this statistic, 25% of young people who need professional input, support, uh, get it. 25% get it. And if we were to say that 75% of young people who suffer cancer, 75% won't get any treatment, it would be... <laughs> yeah. So, well, so that, again, is another government a government thing, short-termism. We're not investing in mental health because it's not immediately going to damage the economy or blah, blah, blah. But long-term, it's huge and getting bigger. And, you know, is there any answer to it? The answer is uh, it can only really come from, from government, I guess. Yeah. Um, but certainly, obviously, we're talking to parents here. They have a, a huge role to play to probably fill that, that gap where schools aren't being allowed to, to develop their students as well as they should do yeah and i think parents it's rather like schools i say to, to to senior schools um particularly high profile senior schools if you were to work collaboratively to put pressure on universities to up their game in ter terms of supporting student well-being it would make a difference if you've got 10 of the most academically prestigious schools in a country saying to uh, Oxford and Cambridge, we want to know which colleges follow these procedures and these principles. And those that don't, we're not going to recommend. That would make a difference. Absolutely. Similarly, if parents were to, to be collaboratively and say to schools, why aren't, why aren't you spending more time on emotional well-being, da, 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 da. Um, that would make a difference. But at the minute, it's all you know, like little pebbles into an ocean rather than a bloody great rock into a i'll be very interested to see uh, that school with the uh, fancy entrance hall and the uh, and the uh, three yeah. um if that list was actually about um, where they appear in the uh, in their ability to develop or deliver mental health training yeah um where would they be and i suspect they wouldn't be in the top 10 they might be sort of quite a long way down no, but they would be able to find boxes that they could tick oh we had dick moore in two years ago yeah that'll do we won yeah we're getting back in three years time when we you know we need yeah. to prove it again but it's interesting though this that really interested me um not many weeks ago beginning of this this term so back in january i was asked to go to a very well-known um very prestigious boys school secondary school uh independent school and um there was a new uh pastoral deputy and a new head for, who both, for, for, for both of whom this whole area is important. And they'd found out that over the last year, four of their old boys had taken their own lives. Wow. And they raised this at a staff meeting. And they said, were people aware of this? And one or two people had said, yes, but they've left. <gasps> In other words, what's it got to do with us? And these two, to their credit, the head and the deputy head, said, we are, we, we, we are responsible. And we're not completely responsible for them reaching that point, but we should be saying, what could we have done mm. to make them more resilient, to make them more able to get through the, the difficulties? Well, it comes back about being able to uh, learn to dance in the rain. Because it's certainly going to rain. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, you know, particularly the way things are at the moment. Uh, I keep talking about uh, the situation we all find ourselves in at the moment, but it's certainly not going to get uh, 
less stormy, is it, for the next month? No. And, and, I, and I sometimes think, you know, if you're for teenagers, if you're at home with your parents, and okay, you've got your social media and you can contact friends, but if you're stuck in the same house as your parents, especially if it's a small environment, um, that is going to cause huge difficulties, and not just to the, to the young people, but to their parents as well. Um, yeah, you know, I think a lot of parents have, I think the value of teachers is going to go way up as a result of this. It's, it's already, yeah, uh, there's a lot of memes on social media about uh, teachers uh, paid at least a million pounds a year. Exactly, and there's yeah. that brilliant one of, of a woman, which I got this morning, eating her breakfast, a bowl of cornflakes, looking completely sort of zombie-like, and her child off screen is rabbiting away. And you just see her reach over and pour the wine onto her cornflakes. <laughs> you know, because actually teaching kids, looking after kids is, is tough. It's difficult, really difficult. And there'll be lots of parents listening to this all nodding. Um, yes, I'm sure. <laughs> we're only two weeks into this, but my goodness. Anyway, yes. thank you very, very much for your time. It's, it's a great pleasure. In there. Um, much appreciate uh, you sharing uh, that very painful story, but certainly uh, lots of uh, positive messages coming out of it. So thank you very lots much. Lots of silver linings. <laughs> Take care. Thank you very much for being up with us. If you'd like to know more about how you can support your child through their GCSEs, then head over to parentguide to gcse.com. See you next time.